Welcome to the Cell Intel podcast, where we explore how single cell and spatial analysis methods are being adopted and are accelerating discoveries in life science research. Hi, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Before we start, we want to provide a little explanation about this episode we have titled Researching Therapies for Type 1 Diabetes, Part 1. We had so much to cover while chatting about the work of our guests, Todd and Megan Brusco from University of Florida, we decided to split the interview into two episodes to maintain our standard listening time of under 40 minutes. So episode 8 is the first half of our interview and episode 9 is the second half. Don't worry, we won't make you wait to hear the interview in its entirety. Episode 9, Researching Therapies for Type 1 Diabetes Part 2, is being released at the same time. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Episode 8 of the 10X Genomics Cell Intel Podcast. I'm Daphne Cooper, a Science and Technology Advisor at 10X Genomics, and I'll be your host for the podcast today. And for this episode, we have not one, but two fantastic guests joining us, Todd and Megan Bresco, uh, a husband and wife team from University of Florida. Uh, Welcome to you both, and thank you so much for joining us today. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourselves and what you do at the University of, excuse me, Florida? Yeah, absolutely. Megan, you want to start, and then I'll... Sure. So I am a research scientist at the University of Florida in the Diabetes Institute. I actually am a full gator. I did my undergrad at University of Florida, stayed on for graduate school and got my PhD in 2012. And I've been working in um, immunology research ever since. My career shifted over into using the 10X platform within the past three years with the onset of a project funded by the Helmsley Trust and looking at human immune development, and then also a project funded by the NIH uh, HubMap initiative on the Common Fund, looking at organs in uh, healthy control human donors. And I'm Todd Brusco. I'm a professor in the Department of Pathology here at UF, and I serve as the the research director here in our institute as well. And I've had a a long-standing interest in immune regulation and the biology of type 1 diabetes. All right, thank you. So you guys work together, and do you guys both work on diabetes research as well? Yeah, I think that that's sort of a, a, certainly a major theme of of our our lab. Um, So it's, it's, very much about trying to understand, you know, at a very basic level, immune system heterogeneity. And and that applies to, you know, why some individuals develop disease at a very young age versus others that develop all the way out to 60 years of age. And through that process of really trying to understand uh, heterogeneity, it's really led us to uh, genetics and, and what drives immune system heterogeneity. And then uh, over the last over a decade now, we've really been involved in uh, acquiring tissues here at UF to understand the immune system, not just in peripheral blood, but in, in the organs in which it's really developing. So central organs like the thymus and bone marrow, and then secondary lymphatics, so spleen, draining lymph nodes of uh, our tor- target organ, which is the pancreas itself. I see. And so for the hub map, is a big focus of that then just trying to generate an atlas for all of these different organs that, is this for the, uh, do you guys focus on particular organs? 
Yeah, so our um, tissue mapping center, or TMC, is mapping the spleen, thymus, and lymph node from healthy control donors. And so obviously we're collecting organ donors. There's some element of something was unhealthy before we collected those tissues. But in terms of we look for medical history and collect donors that were previously healthy prior to whatever brought them into the OR. And then um, that project is mostly focused on establishing a baseline for normal reference for all of these organs. And within the HubMap initiative in particular, it's the um, location of each individual cell. So down to a biomolecular level, we can map the human body in 3D so that we can know exactly where a cell was within that tissue. So we collect multiple sample sites from within each tissue and are looking for changes between within donors um, and across donors as well. Okay. Um, so, you know, when we're thinking about immune regulated diseases uh, like type 1 diabetes, what, what do we understand at this point about how those are caused? Something like type 1 diabetes. Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, like most diseases, um, there's been large GWAS studies that have been done for type 1 diabetes. And, and the GWAS um, has really told us that there's about 150, almost 150 loci throughout the genome that confer a small amount of overall risk for disease. But overall, the, the mountain of risk, I would say, is really still very much related to MHC class 2, the way that peptides are processed and presented primarily to, to CD4 T cells uh, in particular. So that accounts for about half of the overall risk of developing type 1 diabetes. I see. And so um, just in terms of the mechanism, so you have, is, is this it's an autoimmune disease, so is there self-recognition? like um, So is it the effector like or CD8 T cells that are inducing the pathologies? Yeah, so it's that's a, another great question. So it's it really is thought to be an autoimmune disease because of the genetics really strongly pointing to that as, as the main effector population. But it, it spans uh, other tissues as well. So we know... Uh, that beta cells have some of these genes expressed as well. We know there are early markers of beta cell stress that are probably inducing inflammation. There's what looks like a viral signature. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's always a virus that's bringing cells into the pancreas, but certainly there is a stress response that is observable in the pancreas of some of these organ donors. So we see MHC upregulated and hyperexpressed in the, the beta cells and in the islets of patients that develop type 1 diabetes. And then uh, much of what we see about the immune system uh, in the pancreas is really at acute at disease onset. So we see lots of infiltrating cells uh, into the pancreas at disease onset. I see. Okay. And there's been all kinds of, you know, ish questions about is it uh, effectors, is it regulatory T cells that are defective? It's probably a combination of all these different cell types, including CD8 T cells that have direct cytotoxicity to beta cells and are, are the ones responsible for killing them directly. I see. Okay. And so, um, you know, you mentioned all of these populations of the different T cells. And so for people who don't like, um, aren't, aren't super familiar with, with uh, T cell biology and, and all of the different T 
T cell types. So, you know, you mentioned with the CD4 um, T cells uh, that we, you know, have regulatory T cells and, and uh, the effector T cells. So what's the difference between those two types? Yeah, so for CD4 cells, um, you have cells that drive immune responses, right, and help B cells make antibodies. And then you have this subset of CD4 T cells that are regulatory in nature. And there's a key gene that we've identified, that the field has identified, that helps mark regulatory T cells, and it's FOXP3, which is this transcription factor that's responsible for many of its functions. So if patients have a, a mutation in FOXP3, about 70% of them will actually develop type 1 diabetes and, and a whole host of other autoimmune diseases. So they'll begin attacking tissues in their gut, their skin, uh, all over their body. So we know that it's a really critical population for maintaining immune tolerance in general. Uh, and that really also points us to, to this as a key population probably in regulating autoimmune conditions like type 1 diabetes. So what exactly is type 1 diabetes? Megan, you want to start? <laughs> so we uh, type 1 diabetes uh, results from destruction of the insulin-producing cells in the pancreas by the body's own immune system. And so at that point, um, people become dependent on exogenous insulin to be able to control their blood sugar. And, and that's a lifelong therapy that they require. And obviously, there's a lot of complications involved with administration of insulin, as type 1 diabetes in particular impacts pediatric populations, which means sometimes two, three, four-year-olds are needing daily injections of insulin and then, you know, eventual conversion to an insulin pump. We have all of these incredible devices that diabetics can use, but it means that um, that autoimmunity doesn't go away and that they have to continue to... Um, require insulin throughout their entire lives. So it's a, it's an incredibly impactful disease. And because it starts so young, it's, it's got a long time burden on um, individuals. Yeah. And it's, I, I think the other key point and, and where I think, you know, when you talk to people in the general public, I think there's this, they don't, they don't always understand the key distinction between type one and type two. So type one is very much a different pathogenesis. It's an autoimmune disease. Type two is is a process where you you still make insulin, but essentially there's an insulin resistance that builds up. I took a look at um, your paper in Frontiers of Immunology from last year in 2020, and um, you know one of the things in the introduction that it mentioned was this perinatal period and and what was happening during that time in terms of the immune system. So, um, you know, what is so critical about that period? Um, especially when we're talking about um, autoimmune or, or immune-regulated diseases that, that may develop in the future. So we know that um, the immune system is still forming, that baby's really dependent on mom initially for, you know, kind of initial antibody immunity, where if mom is breastfeeding, baby continues to have antibodies from mom for the first six months of life or so before they're really seeding and starting their own antibody production based on their early life exposures. In type 1 in particular, we know that some exposure, dietary exposures and environmental exposures have been identified as risk factors for developing type 1 diabetes just due to how it alters um, that initial exposure to antigen and how the body responds can really persist and, and, and form memory, immune memory to that antigen in particular. 
and then that antigen can kind of trigger other issues later on. So we um, have tissues from that period of time, and we know that there are some pre-existing, as Todd mentioned, the genetics of type 1, that there's a very strong driver just from basic genetics, but there's also a component of environmental exposures in terms of timing of disease development. And if we can identify individuals who may be on the path to diabetes but haven't got there yet, we can start, you know, delivering therapies that are tailored to their specific genetics, to their potential pathway to disease. We have years and years of studies where we can stratify people for risk based on their um, peripheral biomarkers. But what the projects we've been focusing on more recently um, have done, and really with the Network for Pancreatic Organ Donors that was instituted here at UF in 2006 or so, um, has told us is that we need to be able to look at the site of autoimmune inflammation and that what we think of as normal in, in any situation could be a wide range of things. And so collecting more donors that have what we would call normal immunity as a reference point is going to be really important for what we need to do to help solve this disease mm-hmm. and start and start early. Mm-hmm. The other key point I would like to make is that, you know, much of what our lab does is really try and understand the dynamics over age with time. And what's unique about young individuals is that that that's really when your thymus is the most active, right? Where you have the most thymic output. And when we look at the immune system, I think a big part of our efforts over the last couple of years have been to try and build essentially growth charts for the immune system and understand the dynamics of that, primarily the first decade of life where many of the cells are exiting the thymus, seeding the periphery and establishing um, your, your normal immune response and, and really encountering many of the things that you would encounter for the first time. So all of the microbes in your gut, but also your normal vaccine uh, history of when kids, you know, are, are challenged to build pr- protective immunity. It's actually within the, you know, we see the first autoantibodies, the first hallmark of autoimmunity beginning very early on in, in kids. So it can start as early as two years of age. We, we can begin to see some of these autoantibodies. So the, the, those early life priming events are really critical for establishing tolerance or, or going down paths that would lead to something like autoimmune type 1 diabetes. All right, so what types of therapies or treatments might be on the horizon for type 1 diabetes as well as other autoimmune diseases? Yeah, it's a great question. So we're here at the University of Florida. We're fortunate to be part of TrialNet, which is a large nationwide consortium of investigators that are both trying to prevent patients who are at risk uh, from developing disease, but also trying to stop beta cell loss in in patients that uh, just develop type 1 diabetes. So we're fortunate to work with Des Schatz, Mike Holler, Laura Jacobson, and others. And and one of the agents that we've really, I think, pioneered from early animal studies all the way now to uh, prevention trials is the use of low-dose antithymocyte globulin as a, a way to target the immune system and to hit some of those effector T cells that we think are are the really pathogenic ones that are causing beta cell loss. So uh, Megan has has um, participated in some of those single cell studies actually on the 10x platform to understand how ATG 
influences uh, the, or the immune system overall. So ATG, what does that stand for again? Yeah, absolutely. So I should have clarified. So ATG is uh, anti-thymocyte globulin. So it's a, a polyclonal. Okay, you... It's a polyclonal mixture of antibodies that target many uh, cell proteins that are on the surface of T cells. Okay. All right. You did say what it was. I just didn't remember it. So anti-thymocyte globulin. globulin. Yeah, it's a okay. trans. It's a common use, um, very safe transplant drug, and the reason that there are multiple T cell targeted therapies being used in in type one right now, but the uh -huh. reason ATG was chosen was because that is um, has a really good safety profile, has a long history of being used. Okay, and that's in. So you guys are testing that out right now in in a trial. Yeah, so it's been tested through TrialNet uh, already in the new onset setting. So mm -hmm. patients that right very close to disease onset. It's now being moved forward into the at-risk setting. So patients okay. that have antibodies present but have not yet developed clinical onset of disease. I see. Okay. So to see if we can halt the disease process before they ever hit that period where they're hyperglycemic and have, mm -hmm. you know, classically defined clinical onset of disease. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. That's really cool. Um, so what about um, adoptive cell therapies? Is that another like up and coming uh, strategy for treating type 1 diabetes? Yeah, it's an area where I think we've, we've spent a lot of time and effort is trying to, you know, we've had a specific focus on regulatory T cells as a way to uh, restore tolerance with the mm -hmm. idea that you're essentially treating someone with their own cells as a, a living drug. Mm -hmm. And, oh, you know, we've, uh, I did my postdoctoral training with Jeff Bluestone and he's, he's been pioneering cell therapy in the, in the T1D space. And then we've been helping to advance some of those technologies here locally, including using things like cord blood as a, as a cell source for regulatory T cells. The other exciting part of that field is that, um, really what we want to do in type 1 is not immunosuppress someone so that they can't develop a normal immune response. We just want to shut down the autoimmune response at the pancreas. So there's all kinds of exciting technologies at play right now in, in the mm -hmm. immunology space to where you can change the specificity of T cells and change the receptor that's expressed on their cell surface through gene editing and by incorporating uh, receptors that target them to the pancreas. So those are efforts ongoing in the lab now is to really uh, take T cells out of a patient, regulatory T cells, and change the specificity of those cells. Okay, and so this was something that you guys talked about in that Frontiers of Immunology paper where you were looking at regulatory T cells from cord blood versus adult peripheral blood and you use the five prime immune profiling solution for that. Um, one thing that I just, when I was going over uh, your paper is, I just wanted to mention that I really appreciated the detail that was in the materials and methods so I think as a former field application scientist, I always hone in on the, the sample preparation uh, methods, but I have to say the, uh, the data processing, that was really nicely detailed. Just, you know, the whole workflow, and I was just impressed with the level of detail. So for example, the, the metrics where you put the cutoffs so that, you know, in terms of which barcodes you were gonna keep, and there's details like how many dimensions was used for the UMAP projection. So for our listeners who are interested in getting more familiar with single cell data processing, this is just such a great example of that. 
Um, so, thank you. No, <laughs> thank I you. That. I, that was a lot of work for um, on Keshav Matwani's part, a, an undergraduate actually who worked with us, and he's going to be, I believe, working at 10x coming up. Oh, really? Soon. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so, so cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's. Um, and my, I think that is also born of my particular frustration in reading the methods as we we adopted this technology and we were new to it, wanting to make mm-hmm. sure that we were setting our cutoffs. So many things are data set dependent. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people get to just kind of, well, it's going to change what, when your data changes. So they don't yeah. think to put those thresholds out. But I think even having some kind of just any indicator to start with and see what things look like, we it's really important within the field that there's standardization of methods. And I think, you know, yeah. HubMap is working on providing that to the community. The Human Cell Atlas is providing those those kinds of details now as, as the kind of the first users or heavy users of these technologies. Mm-hmm. And that's it's helpful. But in terms of when we started a couple of years ago, it was it was not as consistent across the literature to see those kinds of things. And it's it's really critical to be able to to get started with analysis because I think something that um, was not necessarily shocking, but just maybe frustrating for us in, in these types of data is how long, once you've made the data, it takes you to interpret that data. And, yeah. and it's, you, it's frustrating to go back and wait three more days to, <laughs> to get results. <laughs> Working in flow cytometry so long, I'm used to being able to change a gate and see the results immediately. Um, yeah. So having a starting point is, is critical, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, and so those methods were really great. Like somebody could read that and then basically just recapitulate, you know, what you did. It was so clear. Um, and so that paper, you know, you you talk about, you know, the regulatory T cells and cord blood. So what's the significance of, of cord blood? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I think it has to do with, um, we have an overall question of, um, you know, we know that T cells target beta cells in mm-hmm. type 1 diabetes. And the way that they target beta cells is through their receptor, their unique T cell receptor. So we've really been trying and working really hard to understand the signature of patients that develop type 1 diabetes by sequencing their T cell receptors and understanding, looking for shared motifs and mm-hmm. understanding the reactivity of those T cells. And that's really where the 5' prime I think assayer is really powerful because it gives you that paired TCR alpha beta signature plus the phenotypic information that you would get from something like SiteSeq and the RNA seq signature of those cells. But what's unique about cord in in general is that you know this this phenomenon of uh, the diversity of your immune system is tremendous when you're very young. And mm-hmm. so the, the overall diversity of the T cell receptor repertoire seems very diverse at, at the time of birth when the thymus is active and you're getting lots of naive T cells exiting. And then as we age, we actually kind of narrow our, our immune repertoire in terms of it gets enriched for things like uh, cytomegalovirus reactive cells, these chronic things that we're exposed to over our lives. So. Uh, from a, a regulatory T cell perspective, it just has this incredible population of cells that are very diverse in terms of their overall repertoire. That was one of the big findings of that paper. And then from a, a cell therapy perspective, there's incredible uh, proliferative capacity in cord blood. So they have very long telomeres. 
these T cells, they grow very well in vitro. They don't exhaust, you know, in, in terms of uh, trying to get large numbers of cells for a, a cell therapy. So it's just a very potent source of regulatory T cells. And that was one of the reasons we, we focused on it as a, as a population. I see. And, or a oh, source. go ahead, Megan. Sure. And another thing is that I think with CORD and a lot of our approaches in general, we are looking for something that is safe and, and accessible and affordable for as many people as possible. So looking at drugs like ATG, using CORD blood, um, having stored CORD blood is definitely maybe more privileged than, than not, but there are CORD banks that we could access. Those kinds of therapies are, are known to be safe. They're used in cancer. And so I think that was another push for the CORD blood as well as the general focus of the studies we've done here is safety and accessibility. And I think that's something that's unique about our center. So just wanted to I throw see. that in there. Yeah. Um, well, so one of the things in the paper that I had a question about was, so you talk about this diversity of, you know, the TCR. So, you know, you looked at the clonotype diversity between the cord blood Tregs and the, the adult peripheral Tregs and saw that there was, you know, bigger or an increased diversity in the cord blood Tregs. But one thing that I had a question about was, um, you know, you mentioned that I think you identified for some of those clonotypes that they were, um, I guess, autoreactive or, or, or self-reactive. And so, of course, I hear that and I think that doesn't sound very good. But what's the significance of that and why is that beneficial? Yeah, so is being self-reactive is almost kind of an important intrinsic aspect of regulatory T-cells, right? I you see. want them to recognize self-tissues, but in a way that is protective and, and can help limit inflammation in your immune system. So there should be some inherent autoreactivity to, to Treg, so that you, you have these, these cells that get in and, and can help shut down inflammation in an organ. So that, that makes sense. I think, um, the problem is when those cells, you know, for either genetic reasons or, or because of some viral infection, perhaps, if they lose that suppressive phenotype, then it, it raises this interesting question of do they become or contribute to disease pathology mm -hmm. and contribute to beta cell loss or, or other autoimmune diseases? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so um, when you talk about you know, using cord blood as a source of, you know, cell therapy in the future. If, if you don't have cord blood banked, can you use somebody like just banked cord blood or like more of as an allogeneic uh, or allogenic yeah, approach? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's a good question. And I think it's one that we, we've, we've thought about. Um, you know, I think the first applications will certainly be autologous. So okay. someone's own cord because you have perfect matching of MHC as a requirement. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't necessarily go to a bank and make sure that you had lots of MHC matching and, and identify uh, a reasonably well-matched uh, cord blood unit. Mm -hmm. And you know this is done in, in you know, graft-first host settings and, and for other applications as well. So absolutely, there's a possibility there that you could move into using allogeneic cord as a, a cell source. I, I think that's probably not likely to be the first application just because of safety concerns, uh, but I, I think it, it is a possibility for the future. 
This concludes episode eight. To hear more about how Todd and Megan Bresco are using single cell analysis to further our understanding of the pathogenesis of type one diabetes and how they look into cord blood to find potential preventative therapies, tune into episode nine, researching therapies for type one diabetes part two. If you want to learn more about the single cell immune profiling technology they used, check it out at 10xgen.com forward slash gem eight. That's 10x gen as in 10x genomics and gem eight as in little gems. See how you can analyze full length paired B cell or T cell receptors, surface protein expression, antigen specificity, and gene expression all from a single cell. I also want to mention to our listeners to check out Todd and Megan's Twitter page at Bresco Lab, all one word spelled B-R-U-S-K-O-L-A-B. You can find more episodes of Cell Intel Podcast at 10xgenomics.com forward slash cell dash intel. Subscribe if you want to be notified about new episodes, have the opportunity to give some feedback, or participate in polling questions or trivia contests for a chance to win a goodie and have your name, institution, and research area mentioned on the air. If you liked our podcast, your friends probably will too, so let them know about us. Thank you for listening and keep seeking out the possibilities. Mm -hmm.